0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. Today is our second episode about German immigrants in Chicago. In the first episode, we covered the period from the 1830s through the Civil War, and now we'll cover the period from the end of the Civil War to the start of World War I. So roughly the period from 1870 to 1914, give or take some years. And with me again to help us tell the story of German immigration to Chicago is Dr. Sebastian Wupper. Welcome back, Sebastian.
1: Thanks for having me
0: once again. Sebastian Wupper received his PhD in history and MA in public history from Loyola University in Chicago. A native of Berlin, Germany, he wrote his dissertation on the 19th century German-American milieu in Chicago. He is currently engaged as a postdoctoral scholar with Loyola University, Chicago, researching and documenting the entanglement of the university in the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. He also works as an expert consultant and writer for a high school-level history textbook project. So, before we get started with episode two here on German immigration, let's recap the first episode. The first thing we learned was that the phrase German immigrant itself is highly problematic. Germany did not exist when the first wave of German-speaking immigrants, the so-called Dreisiger arrived in Chicago in the 1830s. So when we speak of German immigrants in the 1800s, we're actually referring to Europeans who are culturally German. But they could have been from any number of European kingdoms, principalities, provinces, or free cities where German was spoken. We also learned that Chicago was the fastest growing city on the planet in the decades between the 1830s and the 1870s. In those 50 years, Chicago grew from a mere 200 inhabitants to over half a million people. And by 1870, one out of three Chicagoans was actually born in a German-speaking part of Europe. Next, we learned about the second wave of Germanic immigrants, the 48ers, who were basically political refugees, many of whom were. They wanted to overthrow aristocratic systems in the various German kingdoms, and they wanted to unite all of the territory into some sort of unified German nation-state that was not aristocratic. Many of them got in trouble for their activism and fled to the U.S., and they brought their political beliefs with them, namely their support of democracy and opposition to slavery and other forms of bondage. We also learned that there was a robust Germanic culture in Chicago throughout this period. That included German language newspapers as well as German community associations. The newspapers were extremely advanced and reported on both American and European affairs quite closely, and the community associations were very important for maintaining Germanic culture as well. There were singing clubs, as well as the so-called Turnvereine, which were basically men's fitness and social clubs. And these were also important centers for political education and political activism. Next, we learned that the Germanic people of Chicago were strong supporters of Abraham Lincoln and strong opponents of slavery. During the Civil War, Chicago Germans formed ethnic regiments to fight on the side of the Union. And we ended episode one with a moving image of Abraham Lincoln lying in state in Chicago after his assassination. Standing around him is a group of German-American singers from a singing club paying a tribute in song to the great president. At this point in the story, Germanic culture in Chicago is still strong. However, the next 50 years will witness the slow disappearance of Germanic culture in Chicago and the transformation of Germans into something more like German-Americans. So, Sebastian, let's pick up the story. Let's go back to 1870, maybe, and what's going on in Europe, namely Central Europe, where all of these Germanic people came from.
1: So... In eighteen seventy, uh the Franco Prussian War erupts. And this is when well, like in it's, it's between France and um Germany the, the, there had been a considerable about amount of animosity since the Napoleonic Wars, because Napoleon conquered what what later becomes Germany, and that had in the in the early nineteenth century had galvanized the earliest forms of German nationalism. And then when the the Franco Prussian War finally, it seems, erupts it's this it's this unifying moment where all of Germandom, it seems, throws their enthusiasm behind the Prussian effort to defeat the French.
0: And Prussia at this time is one one Probably the largest part yeah. of a number of various German right. speaking or culturally German principalities. The other right. big ones are Bavaria, you have the Hanseatic cities, which are free mm. cities, so like Bremen and Hamburg, mm. and then and then some other odds and ends, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, basic basically. basically. Prussia yeah, Prussia is is the strongest in terms of military might. Uh, I mean the, of course the Bavarians will disagree with that, but um <laughs> uh, as, as Who as cares they about that? <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, and 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 so once this uh once the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, German Chicago comes out in an in a really enthusiastic favor for it. There is talk of or, well, later in in the later German histories of Chicago, of German Chicago, the authors then really talk about how this was this unifying element where you have all these people from the various parts of Germany who come together in the German taverns and saloons and, and just basically embrace each other and, and sort of cheer the the, the the Prussian war effort on. And it takes a lot of really interesting turns in in the german community in chicago so and this was more by accident than than uh, by design the publisher of the illinois staatszeitung the biggest german-american newspaper out of the midwest at the time anton Kaspar hazing he is traveling germany at the time that the war breaks out and then immediately switches gears and just starts agitating basically he writes travel letters back to chicago that get published in the staatszeitung detailing what's going on on the ground and then he Hising, has the staatszeitung collect funds basically remittances and if, if you would if you we would call those today from the german american chicago to be sent to Prussian war widows and invalid soldiers who, who got wounded in the war. Hmm. They also sponsor a flag to be planted in in Paris, <laughs> basically. And hazing at some point, he at, he at some point has has an audience with the Prussian high command, and and to to present this flag to them, and that's the, one of these big moments of his life, apparently so the the german the german community in chicago through through this through this line has a very direct connection to what's going on and can really closely follow the events uh, as they un, as they unfold and that really galvanizes it really galvanizes the community and once the and once the war is won by the prussians or rather once france concedes that they've lost rather and the german empire is then founded there's. People celebrate, like German-Americans are celebrating in the streets. It's it's People just go nuts.
0: Uh, Two quick questions. Did the U.S. government have any stance on the Franco-Prussian War? And and was there a French community in Chicago at the time that was like, hey, what's going
1: on? I don't think Chicago had much of a French community, not in a significant way. I've not read anything about that. The American government was fairly neutral the staatszeitung lamented here and there that the american government was supplying the french with uh, with weapons but other than that there there was there was not much in terms of in terms of support for that i mean that's napoleon the third and his in his regime so there, there was not like this it's not like the the Germans were at odds with um, American mainstream politics in this instance, necessarily. I don't think the the average American cared much about what was going on.
0: Okay, so the the Franco-Prussian War leads to some feeling of unity amongst the various Germanic peoples of Chicago. And they uh, basically are very supportive of the effort to unify Mm. Germany, which proves in the long run uh, to be something of a problem. But we'll get to that soon. Let's pause, though, another great event, not necessarily for world history, but for the history of Chicago is the Great Chicago Mm. Fire of 1871. So can you tell me a little bit about the fire and how it affected the Germanic community of Chicago?
1: So the Great Chicago Fire happens at the night of October 8, 1871. It starts in uh, the barn of an immigrant Irish woman. Like, there's legends that the, the cow kicked over the lantern, but that's been disproven.
0: So historian... Do we actually know now that it did begin in her shack or yes, shed? Yes, that's that's Okay, so so that's um, not a, a apocryphal story. That yes. is that is the truth as
1: far as How exactly it started, there is various speculations. It's at this point it's it's I think impossible to without the shadow of a doubt really prove whether it was people who were playing cards there who like threw a cigarette into the hay if the hay just spontaneously combusted which wet hay does that right that's um uh or whether something else human some other human element was involved that's that's not really that won't be solved because it's just been too long. And also like, there's too much chaos, uh, that, that, that happened after because the fire that started that night on October 8th burns down most of Chicago, because it's it's been, uh, that was a, a very dry summer, um, and at the night uh, of October 8th, there were very high winds going, and so this fire starts, and then it's it just can't really be stopped. Most of the city is built from wood. Um, most of the sidewalks are built with wood. There is a tremendous amount of wood for construction that is piled up along the Chicago River, and all of that just goes up in flames, and uh, yeah, the city... Burns um, more or less to the ground. And let's not forget so, this is
0: there are over a half a million Chicagoans mm. at this yeah. time. Chicago is not a small yeah. town yeah.
1: anymore. Yeah. It is a huge city. Chicago is at the time, actually, and this is one of these really just amazing tidbits uh, that I've learned during my research, unrelated to the Germans. Uh, Chicago at the time is actually the busiest port of the United States, which seems strange given that it is not on an ocean. It is a Great Lakes port. And and also the port of Chicago is just this little stretch of the Chicago River that is intersected by a bunch of bridges. But this little stretch of the Chicago River in 1870, 1871, just before the fire, is in fact out competing in terms of just activity in, in terms of ships coming and going and cargo unloaded, and all these things it is the busiest port before new york city new orleans and san francisco but that's just something i always find just absolutely fascinating and then the fire comes and that sort of like throws a little bit of a spanner into things and yeah, again uh, germ chicago uh, is is mostly devastated by the fire because it's on the north it's right on the north side of the river so it's um uh, smacked up in the middle of town, well, just on the north side of the loop. The, what, what really then happens in the aftermath is is what what is most important for the German-American community because the aftermath of the fire then sees a rise in political tensions where uh, Mayor Joseph Medill, who's also the publisher of the Chicago Tribune at the time, then tries to push a city ordinance that would um, require rebuilding most of the city in stone instead of wood and uh, this the german-americans see as a threat to their properties and to their social cohesion of the german parts or to the uh, threat to the social cohesion of the german parts of chicago why is that because most German Chicagoans owned uh, smaller pieces of land, and building on these pieces of land in brick or stone um, would likely have been, would have been prohibitively, pro- prohibitively expensive. expensive, because the because due to the small plot sizes, these individuals would unlikely. Uh, to, we're unlikely to to get the the mortgages necessary to facilitate building in stone, and so uh, the thinking was that uh, they would then be forced to re- uh, if they were forced to rebuild and break our stone, they would have to f- sell their lands, move out of the city, or rent an apartment instead of instead of uh, you know like maintaining uh, their small um, uh, property ownership. So, so what ends up happening? So what ends up happening is that there is a lot of back and forth, political lobbying, and uh, after after all of that, uh, the mayor and the city council eventually limit the fireproof ordinance to really just the the central part of Chicago and spare most of German Chicago, and so German Chicago can rebuild in wood and does not have to be this this fireproof. Um, and so this is this is a, a small victory for the Germans. It's also a victory for the Illinois Staatszeitung because they threw their political clout behind uh, behind this. They organized protests. They organized uh, a lot of the lobbying from German Chicago to, to the mayor.
0: Just another quick question. They certainly had still a good deal of political clout if they were still voting as a bloc. Yep. they should have
1: had plenty of political yeah, yeah, power too they did still have a, a bunch of political power because it's you know i mean it's chicago it's it's kind of well kind of sort of machine politics are are becoming more and more of a thing there it's okay to say yeah yeah and um <laughs> it still is and yeah it still is i mean that's one of the reasons why they eventually are successful and successful in that regard
0: so Chicago burns down, the The German-American community makes this win in that they do not have to rebuild mm-hmm. in stone or brick. However, since the Loop area, the downtown area, has to be rebuilt in, in stone or brick or steel, this gives Chicago a chance to attract yet even more immigrants and workers. So after the Great Chicago Fire, there's another
1: great wave of European immigration, correct? Yes and that's a new challenge for uh the established German Chicago and especially for the 48ers because the 48ers at this point have become established uh well literally become establishment they kind of start to go uh, like move away a bit from uh, representing workers because they uh settle into a more comfortable middle class upper middle class life and so their political ideals and ideas are shifting towards something that is a little more conservative and now a new generation of German immigrants arrive and these new arrivals that come for uh, the jobs that rebuilding Chicago promised and, and, and these are then largely members of a new kind of social stratum they are industrial workers so they are now as we said in the last time for the first time people that, that we can actually call Germans well called Germans but also that we can call working class because they identify as working class in the in the Marxian sense yeah and, and that's and that is an important distinction because these new workers barely owned anything they rented their dwellings instead of um, instead of owning small property they lack the kind of in-depth craftsmanship education that previous working German Americans had um, they are no longer small shop owners and artisans they don't really they they really only have their their own two hands to work with and the 48er chicago a uh, german chicago leadership sees that as a problem because these new arrivals share very different interests um from the established 48er generation and as a cohesive new generation of immigrants they these new industrial workers themselves begin to politically organize because they don't find themselves much represented by the established German American community um so they begin to construct their own political infrastructure um, and that creates tension. They found their own working, uh, working men's newspapers. Uh, their own political clubs. I was just going to
0: say, so there seemed to be some sort of unified Germanic culture, and there was the Staatszeitung and the singing groups and the Turnfreine. But this new generation then it becomes, or the new wave of immigrants is no longer satisfied. So they actually create yet a second culture, yeah. Yeah. G- Germanic Basically. culture yeah. within within the bigger one. Yeah. That's fascinating.
1: But then also the 1870s are, after the fire, also marked by an economic crisis. So the panic of 1873 sort of crashes the American uh, economy. And then many of the workers who had come to Chicago looking for jobs in the rebuilding efforts face a problem that, that now the money is drying up because inflation is galloping, the economy is in shambles. And all of a sudden, all of these workers who come to Chicago are unemployed. And, and that just really excesper, uh, this the strife between old and new Chicago because and now what happens is a lot of labor unrest. Uh, so a lot of workers go on strikes. Not just like, like the eight-hour movement had, has been uh, an issue at this time for... Since at least the late 1860s and and in the late 1860s, the Staatszeitung actually threw their weight behind the eight-hour movement. But now there's a bunch of strikes that that just keep on going on uh, throughout the 1870s. And here, uh, the interests of the 48ers as members of the establishment and the new arrivals as industrial workers with their own self-class consciousness and self-interests clashed the hardest because the 48ers agreed in some cases with the workers' grievances, but they really could not stand when these strikes did you know, much that, that really interfered with uh, the way the way the city works, especially when the strikes became violent, they were would just really <laughs> shout them down from from the pages, basically, to you know. Was be- it
0: also that they didn't want to be associated? So the 48er hmm. Germans didn't want to be associated with with the new working class revolutionary German proletariat because they had spent so much time trying to become establishment yeah people. that's that's so
1: uh, hmm? yeah, yeah that's that that's 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 also a part of that but the thing is also that that they i mean there's there, there's a lot of different a lot of different issues at, at play there where on one hand they want to don't want to be associated with them and then on the other there's also just the thing where these strikes just, just so so these 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 strikes get get very big and very threatening but then there's also also just the thing that because of that that illustrates it demonstrates to the leadership to the to the 48er generation that they have lost control of the German chicago because they can no longer just say okay we're going to talk to the leaders or we're going to you know write an open letter or talk to the people in the tone fine so so that they will interfere there but they they just lack that connection and that you know b- brings them up against that Um, against the the new workers even more. And that really comes to the forefront in the 1877 Great Railroad Strike when that comes to Chicago. Is this the Pullman Strike? No, the Pullman Strike is in 1891, I want to say. The Great Railroad Strike is the first basically countrywide labor action. Some historians say that it's sort of like the final nail in the coffin of reconstruction. Because that's when the the last remnants of federal troops get removed from the South and used against the striking railroad workers, which also kind of shows where the American federal government's uh, priorities lie. Um, Mm -hmm. Defending the interests of uh, railroad companies, uh, not the interests of uh, downtrodden freedmen in the South.
0: Now, in these labor unrests in Chicago, you talk about the the German industrial proletariat yeah. striking and organizing. How much interaction did they have with other immigrant, ethnic, working proletariat groups? So, were they were they joining forces with with Slavic people and uh, other groups, Irish perhaps Irish immigrants, or is the German working industrial proletariat still very much a German thing?
1: they they are not entirely exclusively German. The Germans are in some respects because of the, their numbers, they' are kind of the community leaders. Um, so a lot of the and, and a lot of the the literature and pamphlets and all of that that are printed and handed out in at, at the time is printed in German and English, but they do also address or they, they work together. With, uh, with people from other from other ethnicities, and, and that that comes uh, that that becomes pretty clear in the Haymarket affair, or the Haymarket massacre, or the Haymarket riot. Uh, it's there has like several uh, descriptors basically on when in 1886, during a strike at the McCormick Reaper Factory, uh, in Chicago, an anarchist who to this day remains unidentified. Or at least... um,
0: I think it's safe to say he will remain unidentified. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) When an anarchist throws a dynamite bomb at police that are trying to dissolve the strike action for the eight-hour day, and, yeah, and so seven policemen die uh, directly from the bomb, a uh, bunch more are injured, and then in the ensuing chaos, the police starts to just shoot into the crowd. And, uh, yeah, more policemen die from friendly fire, um, and also uh, a bunch of civilians get get killed in, in, in the whole thing. And um, Shootings in Chicago aren't just a recent <laughs> thing, apparently. <laughs> well, neither is police violence and then what what happens in the aftermath is that that the establishment, that the political establishment uses the the event uh, to strike a blow against the socialist and anarchist movement. Um, So dozens of suspected anarchists are indicted. Eight people are eventually tried and convicted on overblown conspiracy charges that in retrospect had little veracity to them. And six of these eight people who are charged were german immigrants
0: i'm just trying to draw the link between german workers Mm. and immigrants in chicago and anarchism these are farther left than so say like traditional marxists yeah 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 at the time and uh can, can you just Talk a little bit about this constellation of various types of groups because you've got Marxists and then all the way to radical anarchists, and uh, a whole bunch of that's groups yeah, that's, in
1: between. That's kind of an, that, or do we need another hour? For that's, you to that we probably that. that that we probably need an, 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 another hour, and I would need to need to do more research into that. One of the issues at play here is um, that is Bismarck's Sozialistengesetz, so the anti anti socialist law that causes a bunch of german socialists and social democrats to leave the country and a lot of those so this is
0: Otto von Bismarck yes. who is the chancellor of a new united mm-hmm. germany yes passes an anti-socialism law okay yeah.
1: and and this leads to and that leads to a bunch of well this is a very very specific term uh to a, a large number of socialists and people who identify with this movement to emigrate to a smattering of of locations some go to switzerland some go to the uk and then some also go to the united states and that is seen as one of these inciting moments where uh where a lot of this anarchist movement or anarchist socialists i mean it's it's also difficult to sort of really suss out like where these people go and and where and where this this label anarchist is just something that is put upon them by the establishment press because not necessarily all the people that are condemned by the press as anarchists are actually anarchists they would themselves probably more ident- identify as socialists or simply workers who wanted
0: a living wage right or right some right protections
1: right yeah the haymarket affair brings up a bunch of interesting people. Uh, One of them, uh, one of the the, the leaders who gets indicted and and hung is um, a guy by the name of Albert Parsons, who is a veteran of the Confederate States, but he was married to a black woman. He's originally from Texas, and he comes to Chicago after the Civil War and becomes involved in the whole Chicago workers' movement. Parsons works together with with, uh, the German-American worker milieu and so that's kind of my poster child for this interaction between um, American, like like, born and bred American socialists, workers' rights people, and the German American workers milieu.
0: Let's uh, let's move on from the Haymarket affair and let's you mentioned Bismarck again and the. This uh, anti-socialist law. Um, as we get into the 1880s, what's happening in Germany, and how is
1: Germany uh, not making friends with the U.S. <laughs> government? So, uh, when Wilhelm II ascends to the uh,
0: and Wilhelm II is the the emperor per se, but Bismarck is
1: is the chancellor. So, yes. do, will we call it Germany at this time a constitutional monarchy? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's, that's right. Okay. That's pretty much what it is. I mean, it's, it's called the German empire, but it's still more of a, yeah, it's still more of a constitutional monarchy. And it's kind of, and that's, and, and, and that as a side note, that's kind of a, a, an irony of history that the 48ers really cheer this development on because it's finally, they have the United German, the, the United German state, but it's under it's it's emperor, it's more of Wilhelm a monarch. It's it's more of a monarchy than than they original than they originally at at the time that they were trying to overthrow things were were really aiming for. I mean, I, I could. I, okay, I have to stop myself here. Otherwise stop! Stop yourself. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so Wilhelm II. Wilhelm II. Uh, and Wilhelm II has these imperial ambitions. That's where Germany starts to look to have colonies and become a colonial empire, Um, and that starts actually slightly before Wilhelm II II, uh, ascends. But anyway, so in um, between 1887 and 1889, American and German warships were engaged in what essentially amounted to a staring contest on the Samoan Islands, the Americans, the Germans, and the British were sort of all three meddling in uh, in the Samoan Islands to support candidates for the Samoan throne, and and they all like none of them really quite understood how Samoan society worked, and uh, it descends into ca- into some chaos and civil and and like a small small ish scale civil war. But then the Americans and the Germans uh, have this. Ongoing standoff with uh, where, where the warships just basically uh, shoot angry glances at one another, um, and the whole thing ends when a cyclone comes along in 1889 that sinks most of the ships involved <laughs> and destroys both sides. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and that's uh, and and that's sort of really uh, gets utilized by the um, American press to uh, shore up anti-German sentiment because the german empire now seems suspect and and as and seems like it's it's becoming a threat to american imperial interests around the world which in reality was not really true because the, the the german empire had little interest in going to actual war with the united states sure here and there like in samoa and like in some countries in central america they had some small designs to maybe possibly do a little bit of colonialism there, but that never amounted to much. But nonetheless, the American uh, press and figures in in American politics take this up to make the German Empire into a bigger threat than it actually is. And along with that comes also a shoring up of anti-German sentiment against the German-American population. Uh, that are already kind of under something of a general suspicion as, uh, you know, bomb throwing anarchists.
0: Yeah, and no distinction in the popular press is made between the different generations of German Americans. There's no yeah, distinction no, yeah. made between like the Forty ers and the the new type of younger working yeah. German radical. Yeah, as is often the case in the news.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then this anti-German sentiment just keeps basically keeps growing and, and festering in, in the American general, general population. And that really comes to a boiling point uh, when the United States enters the Great War. In nineteen seventeen, and that's something uh, that that for people who aren't necessarily that familiar with First World War history, the United States come late into the war, only in nineteen seventeen. Once uh, uh, because the thing has been going on for a while at that at that point, but uh, yeah. So, and when the you know, U.S. enters the enters the war, that really is the death knell for the existing German America. So
0: the U.S. enters the Great War late. Mm. But essentially we're talking, so from the Samoan crisis, which ended in 1889 to the outbreak of World War One, and then the United States entering in 1917, you're saying that one can actually see a thread of increasing anti-German-ness mm-hmm. in not only American foreign policy, but in American
1: domestic policy yeah, as well?
0: yeah, yeah. Do you want to expand on that a little bit?
1: Um, well, uh, so this, so this is kind of, because in, in the literature, it oftentimes comes across as if uh, German America sort of gets shut down kind of out of the blue once the United States enters the war. But that's kind of an over, that's, that's like a gross oversimplification because this, uh, anti-German sentiment at the time did not come out of nowhere, that's why I bring up the Samoan crisis because the Samoan crisis is kind of like it's, it's a fairly unimportant little historical tidbit, but in the the greater scheme of things, if we're looking at German American history, it's emblematic of this larger development where uh, the the German empire suddenly seems like this, this big threat combined with uh, German born anarchists. And that's, that's, goes into the whole anti-immigrant, like the, the, well, always sort of present, but then again, rising anti-immigrant sentiment of the time that then says that, you know, Europe are sending, uh, are basically sending the dregs of their societies over to the American shores, either just to, just to get rid of them at best or at worst to undermine uh, the American project
0: yeah that's a common trope of american politicians for a long long time yeah. saying that country x is sending its degenerates to to the us because that country can't deal with those degenerates mm. themselves good to note that you know that that's an ongoing unfortunate theme in american history
1: mm-hmm. from there on out you have this this rising sentiment against the germans that that are like other immigrant communities regarded with suspicion because of their well foreign habits uh they're using a language that most americans don't understand both in speaking and in writing yeah one way one way to anger a red-blooded
0: american is to speak a not an english language Mm -hmm. watch them get really angry (laughs) as if there's only one language on the
1: planet Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and uh and that's and i mean and, and i mean that's that's all in spite of the german americans up to up to a certain point at least having been these almost model immigrants because they assimilate fairly well they for the most part Have a large contingent of people who are in the upper middle class and they value
0: education
1: and hard work, right? Right, um, and 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 they introduce a a number of you know social staples, so to speak. For example, and this and this is especially especially the 48ers because they are so involved in politics. So, so for example, the the reason that (laughs) some America, some people. some people will see that as as another reason to hate the germans but the reason that gym class is a thing that's due to the 48ers hey um,
0: <laughs> for all of you who loved or hated gym class
1: <laughs> thank the thank the german immigrants from 1848 yes but then on the on the other hand uh, the reason that playgrounds are a thing is also a, uh, going back to the 48ers so you went. Why is that? Uh, just uh, that's one of the, like because the, the people who brought the concept of playgrounds uh to the United States were were Germans, were German Forty ers Oh, and also kindergarten, of course. Yeah, yeah, in, in kindergarten. That's and the then, obvious one. And then
0: in in gym sh- class and playgrounds. So
1: in, in Chic and in Chicago, um, and this is this is very spe- Chicago specific. They the Forty ers also organize in uh, the Altenheim, an, an old people's home where where retired german americans uh can go and live and, and be cared for so the retirement home as well this uh, this i'm not entirely oh, come on claim it <laughs> <laughs> i'm a historian claim i it for the I have to don't have to try to be at least
0: somewhat somewhat specific about no, you here, don't. no, you no I don't. so okay. the re- if you if you're in a retirement home listening to this thank the germans yeah.
1: <laughs> but only if it's a good retirement home if not then, if it, only then if it, was not, it was not it was not us um and of course, you know beer, right? Like um, brewer yes. brewing. Sure, the Brits had ales, but come on, come on. <laughs> uh, and, and all of that then uh, comes tumbling down when the U.S. enters World War One.
0: Let's talk about this just a, a little bit mm-hmm. more deeply. How does the anti-Germanness manifest itself in in the day-to-day life of a German person in Chicago? Because maybe in some big ways eventually we see the the closing of the german language newspapers mm. and things but uh there are still enough germans in chicago that that's you know it's not like their hom- homes are getting burned down by angry mobs of non-germans or were they i don't know anything
1: about this they do face some discrimination in everyday life so they try to um minimize their their individual germanness um a little more to evade these these backlashes because of these public backlash german institutions also purge german terms from their names so the tonverein uh, the, the, the tonvereine renamed themselves to be more american sounding for example the german americans at large really in order to evade in order to not be suspected of being unpatriotic or of uh, or being un-American, they they really just individually and collectively downplay their Germanness stronger than they did before. Not that they necessarily did did, did much of that before. And and as you said, like the real the real uh, death blow is is then to the newspapers. So the German newspapers were by law required to provide an English translation of all articles that they would publish the following day to the post office, a day before publication, and they could not talk about anything related to the war. And if you've ever worked in translation or had to pay for a translation, you, translations are costly, and uh, it's difficult to provide a translation of such a large volume in such a short time. And that w- that that really broke the neck of... Um, many german american newspapers so many german american newspapers just quit their operations after that and, and and with that uh a lot of the german cultural larger german cultural sphere or at least german speaking cultural sphere uh that had existed in uh, chicago um but also in new york and, and other places st louis uh basically comes to an end but This is kind of like an an an, an important caveat uh, that this it's not just the anti-German sentiment that 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 ends German America. It's also cultural assimilation (laughs) because the children of the immigrants essentially end up preferring the American ways over the German ways because they because German literary literary clubs fold due to a lack of interested members since the second and third generation German Americans preferred, essentially preferred going to the movies instead of attending discussion groups and stuffy salons discussing the works of Schiller Goethe. and Goethe. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so you have the, the second generation who are just like, yeah, they're not they don't want to have much to do with this with this highfalutin, you know, German cultural sphere as much and they just really embrace being American and embrace the embrace the novelties of um, American society more than they embrace the traditions of, of, of their German ancestry. And that in combination with uh, anti-German sentiment and, and all the stuff that happens in, in, in the wake of World War One, then puts largely an end to German America or to the kind of German America that existed in the 19th century up to that point.
0: Yeah, and so we're not going to get into World War Two, but certainly by World War Two and the end of World War Two, even any remaining vestiges of any sort of subculture were totally or had totally disappeared. Largely, yes.
1: Um, there were still German um, interest groups and, and, and like German historical societies and and and. Uh, like people who had an interest in keeping at least some low level of german Americanness alive. I mean, what, what I personally find more interesting is what happens after World War II is because after World and War let's, II... And let's
0: say, let's actually, I'm happy you brought that up. Let's, let's, uh, so we've discussed the decline and fall, as it were, of German mm-hmm. culture in Chicago. Uh, and then let's go to the post World War II period and talk about maybe a little bit of a renaissance of German American culture and German American interest in Chicago.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's kind of a uh, part of the whole story that, as, as of well, as of today, I guess, is um, not terribly well explored because it's not um, it's not that happy of a story. So after World War II, there is another distinct cohort of people from Germany that immigrate to the United States. And uh, that cohort is, well, it's interesting because it's kind of problematic because a lot of these people who immigrate at that time are more or less unreconstructed. Well, people with nazi sympathies not necessarily not necessarily completely card-carrying full-on but still they are very much inflected by the nazi regime well and after the war the country is devastated and a a lot of people emigrate to the united states which seems counterintuitive because the united states were the enemy but mm, it's it's things things are more complicated than that because a lot of the people who come to uh, the United States and also to Chicago after the war are uh, people from the, quote-unquote, lost eastern provinces from, of Germany. So after the war, Germany has to cede uh, substantial territories in, uh, to, in the east of the country to Poland. Uh, so eastern Prussia, Silesia, and Pomerania so eastern eastern prussia becomes uh, kaliningrad uh, ceded to the soviet union and Silesia and uh, Pomerania are ceded to poland and the the germans who lived there are essentially pushed out of their of their ancestral homeland and that creates um that creates a problem because where do these people go so a lot of these people then end up in west germany and they're not necessarily terribly welcome there Uh, just because you know like west germany has its its own problems to deal with after the war and suddenly there's all these refugees who are who've been pushed out of um their their homelands and a a contingent of these people end up immigrating to the u.s another contingent that is something that i find deeply fascinating (laughs) a smaller contingent of people still are uh German prisoners of war who were sent to the US and who and who spent time in the US as prisoners of war but liked their experience there so much that after the war they came back as immigrants hmm. which That's is just wild and this cohort it's, it's not as large as um, any of the 19th century cohorts it's kind of a footnote to the whole German-American experience but this cohort is still large enough to organize some representation among themselves because they by and large do not get along with the established german americans because they're a different breed of of people a different breed of of germans and so they organize in their in their own social clubs and, and organizations and um in that they <laughs> and 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 in those uh, organizations they then really at least for some time show their true colors where they've taught where, where they invite a lot of uh like holocaust deniers revisionist historians um old not like old like second and third tier nazis who are still uh, who are still around to give presentations and lectures the organization that comes out of chicago grows out of grows out of uh, uh basically out Wait, of what years uh, are we talking by the way? Uh it's like in the Not late like f- is like it starts in the mid to late fifties. Nineteen nineteen okay. fifties. So we're still we're still talking seventy years ago. Yeah. This yeah. cohort. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting because this like one of the larger organizations basically forms out of a letter writing campaign to american movie and tv producers where these german immigrants complained about the portrayal of the german world war ii armies in american war movies where they're basically where they're basically shaking their fists and saying how dare you besmirch the honor of the german soldier like well the German soldier did like a bunch of really terrible things in the war, but we're not really, yeah, it's not it's not really something these people want to be talking about. Yeah, and then like there's like other really just deeply weird steelblüten anecdotes that that come out of this uh, out of this whole affair. There is like the president of this organization in the 1980s writes. Protests, like a series of protest letters and organized organizes a letter writing campaign to um to the american congress protesting the construction of the holocaust museum in uh, in, in dc decrying the holocaust museum as an anti anti-german propaganda basically and basically uh, and, and over time this cohort dies out Their like their organizations sort of really f- are fizzling out over time and these days there's not really much left of them but that's that's really the last hurrah but like a well not even a hurrah it's it's kind of pathetic and and not not terribly yeah not terribly celebratory it's not not a celebratory story of of plucky immigrants who who come to the u.s and um and 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 find life for themselves it's more of a story of people who are just left behind from this, from this, from from the Nazi regime, and and never really cope with uh, what what happened at the time, and um, yeah, and then just come to the U.S. because they are attracted to the United States, among other things, because they are uh, uh, staunch anti-communists, especially the people from the former Eastern provinces, because they blame, of course, the 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 communists um for the loss of their territory. You know, the loss of their ancestral homelands. And that's why they end up being welcomed with open arms in the United States in the 1950s because they're, oh, yeah, great. Let's bring them in. They're anti communists, right? Who cares what they did yeah, before? Yeah, well, that,
0: that reveals these, the stories. This last cohort you're speaking of mm-hmm. reveals a lot of the paradoxes and contradictions of American foreign policy right. and global mm-hmm. politics right. during the war and post war. Suddenly, people who are uh, Far right Nazis we could tolerate because they hated communism more than anything else. So, well, I guess that's all right. What a what an interesting way! I didn't realize we were gonna end this podcast episode <laughs> with a discussion of the strange, as you call them, deeply weird post World War II generation of immigrants, um, that which has complicated my picture of German immigrants mm-hmm. in Chicago even more. But I think one thing I've learned in this two-episode series about German Chicago is quite how diverse it is. Mm -hmm. Just as the German people were diverse back then and are diverse today, uh, German Chicago is also diverse. And we've applied some tags to them, the Dreisiger, the 48ers, the ones that came after the Franco-Prussian War the ones that came after World War II. But uh, I guess if you look at the full picture here, German Chicago is quite diverse, Mm -hmm. although ethnically and culturally German. And it's quite a fascinating history. Sebastian, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about German Chicago with us. It was really fun learning about the diversity of German immigrants in Chicago.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Dankeschön. All right, gern geschehen.
0: Und auf Wiedersehen. so you know once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.